Okay, welcome to uh, Social Work Shorts, and uh, this week, uh, or this episode, should I say, I'm joined by a newly published author, Angela Kerwin, who has a book out at the minute about prisons, and uh, and when I was uh, asked to have a chat with Angela, I discovered that she also has a master's in social work, so hello Angela, how are you today? I'm great, thank you so much for having me. That's all right. That's good. So tell me, how does how does somebody who studies for a master's in social work uh, end up end up working in uh, in prison? How did that happen? So I actually started doing my master's in social work because I was a young carer for my grandma. Um, went on from there to working with a young man with um, physical disabilities. Started to do some dom care, these kind of jobs around my A levels at the time, and. When I finished my undergraduate degree, I kind of looked back at my work experience, realized it was all with people and in the social care sector, thought, oh, well, I'll go on and do a master's then. Um, And I really always thought I'd work with old people after my experience with my grandma. But my first placement on my master's was with an intensive tenancy support team um, who... Um, it's not the right terminology these days, but we called it the complex and chaotic team. And this kind of threw me into working with people with real substance misuse and mental health issues. Um, and I think I really wanted to prove myself. Um, I really, really wanted to work with the, the hardest service users. So I somehow managed to start doing in-reach into prison um, to get to these service users before they came back out into the community. And that gave me the real bright idea that if I got behind the walls, I could make more of a difference. I could get to people whilst maybe they were drug free. Um, I thought they'd be stabilised on their medication. Their mental health would be stabilised. And I thought, yeah, prison's where I can go to to change the world. Um, (laughs) So I went behind the walls full time, um, finished my master's and went behind the walls full time and very quickly started to realize that although I was making a difference to individuals' lives, there were systemic problems that I was banging up against um, day after day after day. But yeah, in a nutshell, that's how I ended up behind the walls and then yeah. stayed behind the walls for a few years until until I realized being behind the walls was too much. So I left to write right. about it instead. Oh, that, that that's excellent. And I mean, I mean, that what interested me when I found out about the book uh, and, and found out that I could have a chat with you, um, it struck me that uh, it came at a point where we've got, I work for some of the university and we have students on placement um, in an organisation who support prisoners as they're leaving. So I was already kind of a little bit aware from conversations with one of the students that there is very little support. Um, literally, the door is opened and the person is is let out of prison yeah. And that's it. You know, they may not have a house to go to. They may not have benefits set up, all those kind of things. And I just found that kind of troubling. And that, that's something you talk about in the book. I, I picked up on the uh, the story of, of, of Taylor um, that, you, that you talk about in the book and discovered that 15 percent of those who go through the go through the gate, I think was the phrase you used. 15 yeah. percent of the people who go through the gate are, are homeless at that point. And. Uh, can't read the forms for their benefits. How 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 does that in a society like we're in? How does that even happen? Why is there not the support there? 
I think we have this real um, mentality in this country that once people are behind the walls, they're out of sight and out of mind and they're not part of our communities and they're not part of our society. So we can just leave them there and forget about them. And there's there's real kind of interesting data and stats about this. So within the first 12 months upon release, 48% of people released will be reconvicted of a crime. So we've got one in two people going through the gate will be reconvicted within 12 months. So so something's failing there. And when we look at the, the through the gate model, there, there are some slight changes to the law coming in now. But when I was working there, um, you couldn't claim benefits whilst you were still in prison. So we had the thing where you had to do that on your first day of release. You had to get your benefits set up. And I think um, most of us who've worked in the social care sector um, and had anything to do with benefits know that can take weeks to come through your first payment. But on top of that, there are then levels um, of, of issues for people going through the gates. So they'll probably have to go to probation on that first day out as well. Then they'll probably have to go and get their um, prescription for methadone if they have a substance misuse issue. So that's three quite hardcore, heavy appointments. And most of the time, they're not getting through the gates till 12 o'clock, one o'clock in the afternoon. And if that happens on a Friday or bank holiday weekend, like we've got coming up, there is no chance you can meet your probation, get your methadone, get your benefits, um, get your housing sorted in one day. And there's just this disconnect between community and prism. I think part of the problem is there's been this real like narrative shift. I can see like in my lifetime, this narrative shift towards, well, they've been in prison, so they don't deserve anything. What about the homeless veterans on the streets? Um, and my answer to that would be, we should have no one homeless on the streets. Um, I, I think, I think, the fact that it's acceptable to have anyone sleeping on the streets or anyone with a real substance misuse issue not getting health care, primary health care for that problem um, is this real, real disconnect in, in looking after members of our community, members of our society. But I do think there has been this shift that, well, they're prisoners, we don't care. We need to deal with the deserving poor, the deserving homeless before we deal with them. So I, it's just been left as this system where there is no connection between community and custody. And as you mentioned with some of your students on placement, so I I set up and ran a through the gate service when I was in prison. But this was funding from one London borough um, to go out just to that one specific area. And it was kind of a pilot program and it, it showed that Reoffending was really reduced if I worked with people inside custody and then for six weeks outside as well. And these kind of these kind of services, we just need to be doing more and more and more of because they do work. They really, really help. Yeah, yeah. I mean, dare I, dare I say it, I think we have a, a government whose ideology is rooted in deserving and undeserving. Don't yeah. we really and and play yeah. and play that card um, a lot of the time in in the way that they uh, operate ideologically uh, mm -hmm. definitely so that that's a very familiar familiar thing that I would talk about with students a lot as well one thing one other thing that surprised me as you were talking there with the amount of people. I think I was already aware that many people in prison had mental health problems. I think I kind of I knew I, I knew that already, but I was surprised at how many people uh, had learning disabilities or a learning difficulty who were in prison. Um, so they maybe don't have the skills when they when they they come out of prison to to like you say fill those forms in and kind of just understand what they need to do to function within their yeah. kind of daily lives. Yeah. 
yeah, the average reading age on the wings is 11. Um, and, and if that shows us the, the kind of failures before people get to prison, I think that, that mm. really gives us an insight into people who have failed, failed through the education system, failed throughout their teenage years to then end up in prison with a reading age of 11. But I mean, I've, I've been on the phone trying to sort out repaying my student loan today, for example, I've still not paid it off. Yeah. Um, and and I can't negotiate this. Yeah. I can't manage my way through this system. And I have really good internet and I yeah. have access to a phone and I have a master's level education. And I find it incredibly difficult. So when you're waiting for your 10 minutes phone call on a landing to do that and you cannot read the forms, it's all mm. but impossible. No, and I think you're absolutely right. And that's something that, that resonates through a lot of the things that I, I talk about with a lot of people is that people see the, the consequences, but they don't see the reason why somebody's offended in the first place. Do they? They, they, they don't peel the layers back to get at that. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, if, if people don't have the the life skills, I suppose, and are, are people being let down by education in the first place is the question, isn't it? Or, or a particular group of people are being let down by the education system so they don't leave school with the right skills. So they turn to crime, I suppose. Is, is, there, is that their reality? Yeah, and I'm always I'm always kind of reluctant to like equate poverty to criminality. Yeah, yeah. But but the people who end up in prison or the people we we stop and search and arrest and go through the 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 system tend to come from extreme poverty. Mm. Um, and when people are growing up in poverty without food in the house, without heating, with overcrowded conditions, no, it's it, it's difficult to then to maintain an education um, when when your parents are trying to decide between the electricity or the food on the table. No, books aren't going to be a priority. Um, yeah. I think what I've seen, I suppose this is going on a massive tangent, but what I've seen as the most um, likely way of succeeding and not returning to prison is if people have really strong, secure social networks. And if you so if you're going out and you can stay on an uncle's sofa um if you're going out and you have someone who can put a roof over your head and help you get your cscs card so you can go and work mm. on a building site then then those are real precursors to success but mm. if your parents have their own substance misuse issues or if your parents have their own mm. chaotic lifestyles then then we're expecting people to to build from a foundation they've never had in the first place i think yeah yeah and I think I read a statistic in the book, or I think it was a little video advertising the book, that 50% of people return to prison within a year. Was that right? Have I got that right? So 50%, or, well, are, so 48% are reconvicted. So right, okay. they, right. they might not come back to prison, but they're reconvicted of a crime. So 48% right. are caught doing something bad mm. again. But after about five years in the, in England and Wales, that goes up to 75%. Right. So, so three and four within five years will be reconvicted of a crime. Yeah. Right. right. One of the other things that interested me was Callum's story um, in, in the book. Um, and what I took from that was the shopman statistic that 15% of people have not yet, who are in prison, have not yet been found guilty. And um, I just wonder what the impact is of, of somebody in that position who was then ultimately found not guilty. You know, they've been exposed, haven't they, to a particular environment that might have actually um, done them some sort of damage, I suppose, done them some sort of harm. Is, is that what happens? 
absolutely. So um, I've asked a friend who knows nothing about prisons to read my book. And I've said, I've not included a glossary in the back. And I said, do you understand everything? And she said the one word she didn't understand was remand. Right. And remand is this, you go to prison before you go to trial. Um so we have around 15,000 people, 12,000 12, to 15,000 people who are in prison who have not been to trial. They've not been found guilty of a crime at all. And it's hard to express how harrowing prison is, even if it's one of these new builds. I would see self-injury every single day. And it's only stepping back now that I'm like, that's not normal. That's not normal for that proportion of people to be self-harming, self-injuring every single day. It's not normal to see people overdosing on spice in front of you. Mm. Um, it's not normal to see fights in front of you. And I after doing a social work master's, I'm pretty good at self-reflection. I'm pretty good at, uh, at realizing if I'm struggling and asking for clinical supervision if I needed it. But if I was through, and, and also I got to go home at the end of the day, I could always yeah. like hang up the keys and, and kind of compartmentalize my life. If you're going into that situation, you, you will not come out unscathed mentally. You're being locked in a box with another man for 23 hours a day. Sometimes you don't know what he's capable of. Um, I don't know if people have watched the film, um, the series Time, the Jimmy McGovern series, but that really showed, I think in the first scene where kind of Sean Bean's just the cell doors open, he's like, here's your pad, mate, go in, and the door's locked. That must be terrifying and traumatizing. But one of the, the things about remand that's quite worrying is how much it's overused. So we put people on remand into prison because we don't think they're going to turn up for the court date when the court date does finally come. And if we don't think they're going to turn up for the court date, that's because they're quite chaotic. And they're usually quite chaotic because they have substance misuse problems or they don't have um, accommodation. So they can't put down an address to be bailed to. So instead of dealing with these problems in the community of chaotic lifestyles, we're just warehousing people in prison to wait mm. for their trial because we cannot look after them in the community mm. until the day of their trial. So yeah, one in 10 people who are on remand in prison will subsequently be acquitted or have never got a custodial sentence in the first place. So that's a couple of thousand a year, innocent people in prison indefinitely at the moment. Mm. Um, but the other lot who, you know, they, they do get found guilty. Um, and they will get some of that time served from their time yeah. on remand. But mainly the reason they're on remand is because they haven't got an address or a stable lifestyle to be bailed to, yeah. which is another kind of symptomatic of this huge societal problem we have. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 it's it's much wider than just the, the prison sentence, the prison term, yeah. isn't it? It's much wider yeah. than that, yeah. <laughs> um, well, the other things that I found it, it, an interesting statement that you made in the book is that prison is not like lockdown. Um, and I just found that really interesting uh, because clearly it clearly it isn't. Yet, well, when we were all in lockdown, mm. we saw an increase in mental, and you mentioned this in the book, mental health problems and substance misuse problems. Yeah. So it should be apparent to all of us what the the, the problems associated with have been restricted in some way. Yet we weren't restricted anywhere near the level that these men are restricted. So what are the what are the what are the uh, substance misuse and mental health problems um, like in prison? Huge, I'd imagine. So yeah, um, I I was in prison at the time when Spice, this um, mm. synthetic cannabinoid, kind of just overflowed the estate, and 
there are people just overdosing day after day. A a strain of spice called Man Down came into the prison one year and it was probably four people. We have a code blue, which means someone has stopped breathing. Someone is dying. We had like four code blues in one day um, at one point. So, the substance misuse issues, they then breed the mental health issues. The mental health issues breed the substance misuse issues. And I think the statistic is seven out of 10 men in prison report mental health issues. Um, and 30% of people say it's easier to buy drugs in prison than it is outside. So, so again, it's this warehousing of problems. But I think when I say that like prison isn't like lockdown, it's definitely not. We were able to control our own hygiene. We were we had access to the internet. And although we were isolated from friends and family, we were able to, to stay connected with them in a way that they tried to do in prison. They started to try and bring in these video calls. But ultimately, the men were locked in their cell with a stranger for 23 hours a day, um, often without a shower in the cell, with a toilet where they slept. So the hygiene there and the the... the the feeling of being a sitting duck just waiting for this virus must have been absolutely terrifying. Mm. But I I definitely had to really put in place real rigorous structure and routine for myself. I did my lockdown in Italy, so we had two months not leaving the house um, on my own. And and I really had to work hard to keep keep mentally well during that. But I, I had the autonomy to be able to do that. And then we have the the stats kind of coming out from different charities about people starting to drink a lot more in lockdown. And I think we saw that for the first few months of, you know, endless Zoom parties and online quizzes where everyone was drinking. So it's not it's not a huge step to think, well, if I was in prison, yeah, maybe I'd want to use substances. Maybe I'd try and manage my mental health in these ways too. Um, so I think it gives us some insight into what it could be like, even though it is nothing comparable yeah yeah it's a really interesting area the the book that i haven't read the whole book but the bits of the book i've read are um i like the style it's written in because it, it it's very narrative a lot some of it's very narrative and you really get a sense of um who these people are through through their stories and your and your interactions with them what was that what was the the driving force the motivation i suppose behind writing the book how did you think i know this is what i'm going to do next so I have always written, I think I've just always journaled, always written, always like entering poetry competitions when I was 10 years old. Um, so it, it's natural for me to do that. And I never set out with the intention to write a book. Um, I was about two years out of working in prison and I, I'd always had the idea. I ran group sessions almost every day for a couple of years on the wing. We did an hour open access every single morning. And the men in the group were just giving me such incredible advice. Like they were coming out with some absolute gold. And my original idea was like, I'm going to write a self-help book based on what they teach me in prison. And then I quickly realized that that wasn't funny or clever at all. (laughs) (laughs) So just, it just started to to write down what I experienced and write down um, the people I met and the stories they had. And, and then very quickly realized it was a book. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it was not purposeful at all. I never thought I would do this. But once I'd written this kind of narrative of who these people were to try and show the world like the humanity behind the walls, we then really looked at, okay, how can we edit this to then back it up with evidence and data to show why this doesn't work? And I think that's kind of 
the part that I hope will really change people's minds because the people who believe in compassion, humanity, like we've got you, I'm preaching to the choir already. But if we can back it with data, with the economics, with evidence to show that what we're doing now doesn't work, then maybe we can change the narrative a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the book's called Criminal, How Our Prisons are failing us all, and it's published by Trapeze. Um, what, what, I suppose uh, the, the, there's an end section where you give us some kind of things we can do, which yeah. I, which I thought was really interesting, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick some of those up myself. Mm-hmm. But what kind of things can people do to kind of get on board um, with trying to? Maybe change attitudes toward prisoners, I suppose, is the first thing, isn't it? Because if we don't change attitudes towards those who are prisoners, then we'll never change the places in which they live. So what? What? what is that? Is that a fair comment? And, and if so, what Absolutely. can we do? So I've been running a couple of events um, for the book launch and I've been saying I want this book to start conversations and I don't mind if you disagree with me at all but we need to drag this narrative back from just tough on crime playstations in prison we need to drag it back from these sound bites and rhetoric into like a real debate and a real look at the facts but actually one of these events I ran in Manchester the other day a man put his hand up and said we should be doing more than starting conversations we should be looking what we can do as individuals like actively so if we're an employer why are we not looking at employing ex-offenders? You know, if if we're looking for someone to do building work on our house, why are we not actively looking for people who have an offending history and have set up their own businesses? And I thought that was really interesting that we can do these things individually. But I think the people with compassion, the people with humanity, we need to really collectively raise our voices against this rhetoric and show that as voters actually, this isn't what we want. What we want is a society that is safer for everyone. Um, and a society that is safer than everyone will never come if we have incarceration at the centre of our criminal justice system. And, and and the data shows that, the evidence shows that. So collectively raise our voices, keep demanding change and try and think about as an individual what we can do. Because any social justice issue you care about in the community, whether that's institutional racism, whether that's homelessness, whether that's mental health funding, it will be magnified and amplified in prison. Um, And it's a problem in prison if it's a problem in society. Yeah, that's great, Angela. Thank you very much. So, yeah, just again, that book's criminal, how our prisons are failing us all, uh, published by Trapeze. Thanks, Angela. Angela Kerwin for uh, joining us on Social Work Shorts. It's really uh, lovely to speak to you. Um, Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you. You're welcome.